pastors who just want to love and care for one another and be on the same team regardless of location, regardless of denomination, all of those things um, can get put aside for the love and, and the truth of the gospel. And so uh, I'm very excited and thankful that Pastor John is here. So please welcome John shook at the voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke and I said woe is me for I am lost for I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips my eyes have seen the king the lord of hosts lord of hosts Yahweh Saba so one of the things that I've learned uh, in my life I was young and now I'm old er is that uh, we like to have certainty in life. We like to know that things are going to be the way we expect them to be. And, for instance, I didn't know this was on wheels. We could dance, um, but we won't. Um, we like to have certainty. So we like to have our expectations met. So, for instance, we like to believe that if you buy a house, that that will appreciate in value. And for most of... 20th century, that was true. But then we hit 2007, and all of a sudden that wasn't true anymore. We like to think that if we invest in the stock market over time, our stocks will um, earn more money for us. And so we have retirement accounts. And then all of a sudden we find out sometimes that's true, but not all the time. We like to believe that the Bears are a good football team. They did win a Super Bowl. But the certainty is they'll never have a really great quarterback. <laughs> I like the Bears. Uh, I'm not picking on the Bears. But the one certainty we do have in life is that the Vikings will never win a Super Bowl. <laughs> but 
in life, it's not certain, right? We can't predict the future. We don't know what's going to happen next. And so things like the crisis in Iran a month ago, we were wondering what's going to happen with that. Things like coronavirus, which I found out recently doesn't have anything to do with corona beer, um, but it's spreading, right? And it's become bigger than SARS, which is a big deal. And so there's uncertainty there. What's going to happen with that? And uh, closer to home, there's issues like, I just got married and my wife isn't acting like I thought she would, or my husband isn't responding like I hoped he would, and life is full of uncertainty. Now what do I do? Or I just went to the doctor and I got some bad news, and what does that mean? It's uncertain. What's going to happen next? Life is full of uncertainty. So how do we live in the midst of that uncertainty? And not just live in the midst of it, but thrive in the midst of it. Because God's put us in this world for a reason, and he hasn't put us here just to survive. He's put us here to thrive and to bring glory to him. So how do we thrive in the midst of an uncertain world? And the way we do it is by understanding and living in light of three behind-the-scenes activities that Yahweh Saba is engaged in. Yahweh Saba, the Lord of hosts, is engaged in three behind-the-scenes activities, and if we can live in light of those activities, we can begin to live on a solid foundation regardless of all of the certainty that's going on around us. So let's look at those. The first one is this. Yahweh Saba is ruling the universe. Yahweh Saba, the Lord of hosts, is ruling the universe. Isaiah starts, Isaiah 6, verse 1, in, that, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. In the year that King Uzziah died. So a little bit of context here. King Uzziah was a king of Judah. So we had um, Israel, and David was the king of Israel. And then he died. Solomon was his son, and he was king of Israel, all Israel. And then he died, and his son, anybody remember his name? we have any Moody students here this morning? Rehoboam. And so Rehoboam was king of all Israel, but under Rehoboam the kingdom split. And so we have now the tribes of Israel under Jeroboam and just Judah under Rehoboam. And so that continues for the rest of the history of Israel and Judah until they get taken captive. So Uzziah was like, I don't know, halfway along after Rehoboam, but before they get taken captive and sent to Babylon. And Uzziah was a good king when good kings were hard to come by. You'd have a good king, and then his son would be a wicked king and would pull the people away from worshiping Yahweh, and they would worship idols. But Uzziah was a good king. And so when Uzziah died, there was a lot of uncertainty. What was going to come next? Were we going to be at war next? Was the next king going to keep us worshiping Yahweh? Or was he going to try to pull us away from that? Were we going to get attacked? The northern tribes of Israel, they were already being attacked by Assyria. And Assyria was taking chunks out of them, right? And taking this town and that town and capturing another town. And, and it was clear because the prophets had made it clear that this was because the people weren't following Yahweh. And so Judah had to be asking themselves, are we next? Very uncertain times. And Isaiah says, In that uncertainty, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. So 
we have a dead human king, but we have a live spiritual king, divine king. We have an empty earthly throne, but we have a heavenly throne that is high and exalted and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple, probably a symbol of um, his majesty and his power. And above him stood the seraphim. Seraphim is the plural of seraphs, which helps a lot. Seraph just means fiery ones. So we're going to need some seraphs here this morning. And uh, they're, they're flying around the throne of God in their fiery grandeur. And they're calling out to one another, holy, holy, holy is Yahweh Saba. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of the one who called, and the house was filled with smoke. The temple was filled with smoke. What if that happened right now? What if the curtain between this physical world and the spiritual world was parted just a little bit, and we could see Yahweh, Yahweh Saba, seated on his throne. Smoke filling the temple. Feels like an earthquake. These fiery, angelic beings flying around, crying out at the top of their lungs. Holy, holy, holy. David understood Yahweh Saba when he confronted Goliath. He's just a little guy. He wasn't even an adult yet. He had some experience being a shepherd with the sheep. But it was a time of great uncertainty in Israel. This is before David was king, obviously. Saul was the king. And they were in, uh, at war with the Philistines. And they were in this valley, and on one side of the valley was um, Goliath, the giant, and the Philistines, and on the other side was Israel. And Goliath would come out and he would taunt Israel every day. And he wouldn't just taunt them, but he would taunt their God. And he would say, come on, you puppies. Come on, send out a champion. Take me on. And here he is at almost 10 feet tall with his huge spear the size of a weaver's thing. What do you call that? Beam. Thank you. A weaver's beam. And he had to have a, an armor bearer because his shield was so huge he took a whole man just to hold it in front of him and his sword was magnificent. And he's yelling across the valley. He's like, come on! And Saul, who probably should have taken him on, is shaken in his sandals. And the whole Israelite army is freaking out. And here's little David. No military experience to speak of. No armor. No sword. He says, I'll take him on. Who is this guy who comes against the people of Israel? Against the name of Yahweh Saba against the name of the Lord hosts. And so he comes against the giant, and it says he, he doesn't just like dance around like the boxers do in the early rounds. No, he came running straight for him, and he put a stone in his sling, and he, shoo, bam, right between the eyes. Knocks him out. 
falls over. That's the end of Goliath. It's the end of the Philistine army. They flee. It's a rout. The Lord of hosts is ruling the universe. And this word hosts, uh, some Bibles translate it as almighty, which is a little confusing because Adonai is, uh, or El Shaddai is almighty, right? But it, it's more than just almighty. It's host. It's literally all of the angelic beings, all of the heavenly beings, all of the stars, all of the planets, all of the people. He is the Lord of hosts. Um, one Bible translation translates it, the Lord of heaven's armies. And, and so here is this Lord of heaven's armies, this Lord of hosts. And David sees that he's ruling the universe. Whatever's happening here in this earthly plane, Yahweh Sabah is still on the throne. And Goliath seems amazingly big. But behind Goliath is Yahweh Sabah. And so I ask you this morning, which is greater, the uncertainty that you're facing or Yahweh Saba? You may be facing some really serious issues, but our view of God determines how we act, determines how we respond to this uncertainty. And we can respond to the uncertainty with confidence. We can thrive in the midst of this uncertainty by knowing that Yahweh Saba is still on his throne. He is in charge, not just of the heavenly hosts, but of all the hosts, of everything that happens. And the glory of Yahweh fills the earth. Yahweh Sabah is ruling the universe. Number two, Yahweh Sabah is forgiving the humble. The foundations of the thresholds shake. In verse 5, Isaiah says, Whoa, whoa. Is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king. Notice how he's contrasting the earthly king with the heavenly king. The Lord of hosts, Yahweh Sabah. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken from tong, with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth, and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. So here is Yahweh Saba on the throne, ruling the universe, and these great fiery creatures are flying around and singing and yelling to one another, holy, holy, holy. And Isaiah is undone. Because Isaiah isn't outfitted for the holiness of the Lord. And so he says, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, from a people of unclean lips. And we don't talk like that today, right? We don't say, I am a man of unclean lips. Unless we just ate like a peanut butter sandwich. But the idea of unclean lips comes from what Jesus says later, that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so whatever's in our heart is what ends up coming out of our mouths. And so, I'm a man of unclean lips means I'm unclean. I'm undone because I'm unclean. And here is this perfectly holy God. And I'm toast. But, much to his surprise, one of the seraphs comes and 
uh, in a symbol of purification, takes a burning coal from the altar and touches his lips and says, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. Notice that Isaiah doesn't just say, I am a man of unclean lips. He also says, and I am from a people of unclean lips. Isaiah was a prophet of the Lord. And his job was to speak for Yahweh to a people that weren't always following him. And yet Isaiah, when he sees the Lord, he doesn't identify with the Lord and say, yeah, Lord, it's you and me against them, right? We've got to get them to quit sinning. No, he says, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I identify with my people who are also unclean. Yahweh Saba is forgiving the humble. Oftentimes, though, as Christians, I think that we put ourselves in a position of arrogance. We aren't humble. We're like the older brother in the prodigal son. We say that, uh, look, we've been with you, God, and it's these other evil, horrible people out in the world, these sinners. And it's you and me against the sinners, right, God? And so like a couple of teenagers who are embarrassed by their totally uncool parents, we want nothing to do with the rest of the world. And so we withdraw. And the longer we're believers in Jesus, the fewer and fewer lost friends we have. And we just shake our heads or we cluck our tongues and we say we can't believe how horrible the world is getting. Well, of course the world is getting horrible. In fact, it's been really horrible ever since Genesis 3. Why? Because sin. And you know what? We were there too. Jesus says, You've heard it said that you shouldn't commit adultery. But I say to you, don't even lust in your heart after a woman. Because it's just as bad. You've heard it said, don't commit murder. But I tell you, don't harbor anger in your heart against someone. Because that's as bad as committing murder. And he goes on and on and he just ups, ups the bar. You know, and so here I am, and you know I'm a pastor, right? So that means I must be a good person. And I think, well, I've never murdered anybody, and I've never committed adultery, and I've never whatever. But at times, when I'm really honest with myself, I think, you know, I haven't murdered anybody, but I sure know what it's like to harbor anger in my heart. And I haven't committed adultery, but I know what it's like to lust after another woman. And, you know, I I don't have um, confusing sexual identity issues where, you know, I think maybe I'm attracted to people of the same sex. I don't don't struggle with that. 
but I do know what it's like to be attracted to people who aren't my wife. That's not right. I'm not better. I'm just adopted. God has just reached down and chosen me and put in my heart faith to believe and set me free and taken me from darkness to life and joined me to Christ. That doesn't make me better. That makes me his. But it wasn't because of me. I didn't add anything to my salvation. Isaiah 44 says, Thus says Yahweh, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, Yahweh Sabah, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me there is no God. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Notice two things here. Yahweh Sabah is the actor. He's the one who takes the actions. I have blotted out your transgressions. I have redeemed you, right? We aren't bringing anything to the table when it comes to our salvation except our own sin. But notice the second thing. He says, I blotted out your transgressions and your sins. Now return to me. Notice the order. I've blotted these things out. Now come back to me. And so for those of us who are believers, those of us who have had our sins forgiven, we can wander and we can forget that we are just forgiven. And that, but for the grace of God, indeed, there go all of us. And so instead of withdrawing from the world, we can push into the world, and as Jesus says, go, and as you go, make disciples. Because they need what we've been given. Yahweh Sabah is ruling the universe. Yahweh Sabah is forgiving the humble. Our view of God determines how we react to sinners. If we view God in such a way that we think he hates sinners, then we will have the same response. But if we view God in such a way that we understand that he loves sinners and is not willing that any should perish, then we will view sinners the same way and we will remember that I was a sinner until God got a hold of me. So will we retreat in our own little arrogant Christian bubble or will we go forth sent by the Lord of hosts, Yahweh Saba, into the world as his representatives? Let's keep reading. Verse 9. Uh, verse 8. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? So then I said, Here I am, send me. Why is he so eager? Because those who have been forgiven much, loved much. Those who have forgiven little, love little. Why is it so easy for us to sit on the sidelines? Because we don't know the depths of our depravity that God has saved us from. And we don't know the depths of glory that he's preparing us for. But Isaiah got a glimpse of that, and he says, here I am, here I am, yeah, here I am, send me. And so the Lord says, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the hearts of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, 
lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. I rarely hear any sermons on Isaiah 6, verses 9 and 10. We like it right up through 8, right? Here I am, send me. But what does the Lord do? He sends him and says, I am sending you to a people who will not respond. I'm sending you to be a failure. I'm sending you to some really hard places where all they will do is reject you. Who wants to sign up for that? <laughs> yeah, me neither. Yahweh Sabah is sending the willing. This is number three. Yahweh Sabah is sending the willing. But God sends him to be a failure by people's standards. God sends him to the hardest place imaginable where he will just be rejected again and again and again. We tend to equate success with God's blessing. Right? So we have money, we have nice things, we have a nice family, we have a growing church, we have, you know, fill in the blank with your own list. But that's not the way the Bible sets it up. And we tend to think if we're facing uncertainty, if we're facing difficulty, if we're facing hard times, well, there must be something wrong. Maybe I missed God. He didn't really call me to this. No. God sends us to hard places. And in fact, it's the special forces who get the toughest assignments. So if you're in a really hard place right now, it could be that God has you there because... He sees something in you and he's prepared you for that difficult circumstance. It doesn't have anything to do with you. It has to do with the fact that Yahweh Saba, the Lord of hosts, the commander of all of heaven's armies, has deployed you to where he needs you. He's sending the willing. But are we willing to go where he's sending us? So Isaiah was sent somewhere that's going to be very difficult. That seems to be God's M.O. So he sends Moses to lead a very ornery people around in circles in the desert until he dies. He sends David to face a giant. He sends Paul to suffer beatings and shipwrecks and stonings. And eventually he's martyred. He gets his head cut off. He sends Jesus to be tortured to death for our sins. Where is he sending you? Maybe the better question is, where has he already sent you? Our view of God determines how we react to hardship. When we understand Yahweh Sabah, we understand that the hardship may or may not have anything to do with where we're at in the moment. God will always use it for his glory and for our good, right? But we don't have to kind of figure out why things are so hard. We live in a broken, fallen world. Things are hard. But the fact that Yahweh Sabah has sent us is significant. Isaiah was sent somewhere that he would not get any converts. 
I'm not saying that's going to be the case for you. I noticed upstairs there's a number of Voice of the Martyrs magazines. These believers in some of these hard places, I can't imagine facing what they face. And yet we have problems going across the street, bringing a plate of cookies and saying, hey, just wanted to introduce myself. I go to the church down the road, whatever. Anything I can pray for you about. Yahweh Sabbat is sending the willing. Let's take just a second. Take out your bulletin. On the back, there's a place for notes. I'm not totally sure this is true, but um, I've heard it from someone I trust that people who take notes in church, that their mansions in heaven are in better neighborhoods. Um, so we're, we're going to do a little exercise. Think about, see, see if you can list ten names of people you know who aren't believers in Jesus yet, who live in the Chicago area. Ten names of people you know who don't believe in Jesus yet, but live in the Chicago area. So, you know, maybe it's my mom, my old high school teacher. Maybe it's somebody you just know their first name, like Dave the barista at Starbucks, you know. But take a minute, just see if you can list ten names. We'll have the Jeopardy theme going in the background while you write. Silence really freaks some people out, so I won't stay silent for too long here. But go ahead and keep writing if you've got more names. So I've known Pastor Tim for a little while now, and we get together periodically, and one of the things we talk about sometimes is this church, and um, I know he and probably all of you, uh, you know, pray for the church and pray that the church will grow over time and people will come to know the Lord. I can almost guarantee you that the next 20 people to be part of this church are listed on your bulletins. Now, there are people who will come along just kind of out of the blue. They've moved into the neighborhood. They found you online. Or they graduated from Moody, and now they're going to connect, or whatever it is, right? That stuff happens. But God's really interested in raising the dead, right? He's really interested. I believe it was last week you guys had uh, the Lord is my shepherd, right? And so what does the shepherd do? He leaves the 99, he goes and he seeks the one. He's really interested in raising the dead and bringing the lost back. And the way he does that is through us. Now, if you had a hard time getting 10 names on the sheet of paper, I would encourage you to take the first step, and that is to find 10 people. So for me, I'm in a new neighborhood, relatively new in Park Ridge. I don't know everybody yet, but we live um, kind of above a series of storefronts. 
And so the names that I'm learning are the name of the woman who owns the dog grooming place and the nasty lawyer who rents the space next to her and the uh, people next to them who do the pedicures and manicures and then the guy who owns the paint store across the way, right? So all I have right now is a couple names and like that guy who owns the paint store. And so, but I'm starting to pray about, well, what does that look like? What does it look like for me to get to know that guy and develop a gospel relationship with him so that I can eventually share Christ, right? And so that's step one. But my guess is that the place that God is primarily sending most of us is to the people on your list. Some of you he's going to send to Indonesia or excuse me, Iran or China or really difficult places like that. But for most of us, it's right where we are as we go making disciples, intentionally living the gospel. Yahweh Sabah is sending the willing. There's an old movie you may have heard of called The Wizard of Oz. And in The Wizard of Oz, the Dorothy and her companions go down the yellow brick road, and they each want something from the great Wizard of Oz. And they get to Oz, and they get this meeting with the wizard, and things start to go poorly, and they see over in the corner the curtain kind of falling down, and there's a man back there running, you know, the levers and knobs, and, and, and he says, never mind the man behind the curtain, right? And eventually they find out the man behind the curtain is just a man. The wizard wasn't a wizard at all. But what if, for just a moment, we could pull back the veil, the curtain, between this physical world and the spiritual world and see what Isaiah saw? We would see Yahweh, Saba, the Lord of hosts, ruling the universe. We would see him forgiving the humble. We would see him sending the willing. And we would feel very differently about the uncertainty we face. And we would be very motivated to step out in faith because Yahweh Saba is on our side. Let's pray together. God, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is unchanging. Thank you that it is written for us and for our salvation. Thank you that uh, you are a God who has not left us alone. And you are not watching us from a distance. But you are intimately engaged in every aspect of our lives. I pray that as we go this morning, we would go into the world, recognizing that we are going where you have sent us, with the message that you forgive the humble, and the confidence that you are ruling the universe. Thank you that you are Yahweh Sabah. For your glory and honor, we pray. Amen. Amen.